Thank you. Thank you. Oh, you shouldn't have stopped so soon. We just, uh, we only have a few more weeks to do this, so we need to make it count. Thank you. I'm just joking with you. He introduced me as the incredible president. The language is interesting. Um, I'd rather be known as the credible president. <laughs> Say, man, that was just absolutely unbelievable. Well, I'd like to see something believable, you know. Anyway. Oh, it's been a good week at North Central. And uh, coming down to the end of the semester, the completion of another lap in the race. So are you running well? Are you, how many of you are out of gas yet? <clears throat> Anybody out of gas? Winded? That's the way it's supposed to be. Um, if somebody comes to the end of the race and they're not out of, if they're not winded, they didn't run. So if you're out of air, <clears throat> that's good. That's what we do. The, um, we've had a wonderful thing on our giving day. And I don't know if you've heard the final total, but the uh, total that the last report I got was 14,550. That is accurate. 14,550. Isn't that great? So <clears throat> that is just uh, wonderful. Uh, we, the students gave and alumni gave. Uh, some people who used to be here at the school years and years and years ago. Um, somehow saw the video or the website thing and um, sent in a contribution. And uh, so it's been very, very good. Part of what I'm doing this morning is linking the whole issue of finances, generosity, and the way that we are either generous or stingy, either faithful or unfaithful. I'm linking that to what has been the year-long series on living in the presence of the Lord. So at the very beginning, I'll kind of set out uh, what the goal of this morning is. When we talk about revival or revitalization or spiritual life, and especially the word revival, we tend to think of exuberant services because the history of revival is characterized by very exuberant, long, exuberant, powerful worship, powerful preaching, powerful prayer times, and that is very much part of revival. We also think of societal change um, having an impact on society. The, um, the revivals in England a couple hundred years ago affected um, alcohol sales and consumption, gin in particular. <clears throat> it had a societal impact. And very interestingly enough, uh, the little town out in eastern Colorado, where my father was born, Fleming, Colorado, a revival swept through, isn't it, see the language? The revival swept, remember, how does revival work? You know, God sweeps people up in some kind of a move, but revival activity, people turned to God. And um, <clears throat> in that little town, there was, there was a small bar that operated, and it closed up and went out of business. Not because the Christians banded together and got a zoning ordinance that put them out of business, not because they took it to the city council and put them out of business, 
Not because they picketed, you know, and drove away customers. No, because so many people were changed and transformed that the market simply dried up. Interesting use of the word there, dried up. (laughs) So spiritual activity will have an impact. And what I want to do this morning is make as practical an application of this whole idea of living in the presence of God and make a practical application uh, with some examples and some stories that I will tell about how living in the presence of God will affect your life. We say that the presence of God will affect your mind, your thinking will change. It'll certainly affect your emotions, your feelings will change. It will affect your will, your volitional ability to actually make decisions and stick by them and to have the will not to do things you ought not to do, the change of your your physical body will be affected by the presence of God. But um, moral behavior is another dimension. And I, I, what I'd like to do is to help make the point and help uh, all of us see a connection between revival and moral behavior. Uh, because sometimes we think that moral behavior is all tied up in holiness movements, right? And holiness work. Listen, the work of the Holy Spirit is a holy work. Right? has to do with righteousness and holiness, and so it's all-encompassing. Well, if you have your Bibles, <clears throat> either in paper or electronic, or entirely committed to memory, however you do it, <clears throat> but find, if you would, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I don't have this up on slides, but you can find it readily uh, in your electronic Bible or your paper Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to read verse 2. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy or faithful. It's required among stewards that they be trustworthy and that they be faithful. All right, and then make note or turn to another passage, which frankly is one of the most important passages in the Bible for a college student. All right, are you ready for this? One of the most important passages in the entire Bible for a college student, and others as well, but a great application to young people. Luke chapter 16, Luke 16, verses 10, 11, and 12. I'll read them and listen to the words, follow along if you have found it there. Luke 16, 10, and following. He who is faithful in a very little thing is also faithful in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, money, um, who will entrust true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's. If you haven't been faithful in taking care of things that belong to others, then who will give you that which is your own? I could reword that just a little bit by saying, if you can't take care of other people's stuff, how in the world do you expect God to ever give you any of your own stuff? Because the test 
is how well you take care of stuff that does not belong to you. And this is very clear in the Bible. And if you don't take care of other people's stuff well, God will not give you your own stuff. Okay. Here's the thesis for the message, the pattern that I like to follow, and it's a discipline. And a part of what I do when I preach is try to give you some living examples uh, that you can learn from. But I, I try to reduce every message to one very dense, succinct, clear sentence. This morning, the thesis is this. Living with a keen awareness of God's presence will make you a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. And when I wrote that out, I thought, boy, that's, that's too simple. That's too short. It, it ought to be longer. <clears throat> ought to have bigger words in it. So don't miss the profundity of that sentence because of its simplicity. But living with a keen awareness of God's presence in your life will make you a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. You can read the Bible and know the rule book, but knowing the rules does not necessarily mean you will keep them. There's something more, and it's the something more that gives you the power to do what you know. The something more is that sense of the Spirit of God in your life, an awareness that Jesus is right there. And so I use this example, the little bracelet, what would Jesus do? And then our bracelet, which we have not yet manufactured, it's still in committee to see if we'll ever do this. <clears throat> but what would you do if you knew and felt that Jesus was standing right by you all the time? That's a long bracelet, okay. <laughs> what would you do if you felt that Jesus was standing right by you all the time? And that has to do with, it's a way to try to illustrate the impact of an awareness that God is present. You can have an intellectual, theological knowledge of the omnipresence of God, and from that conclude, He is here right now. And that is true. But if you don't feel it, if it has no impact on the way that you feel and, and what you do, then it's a pointless piece of theology. We don't want to be people who are very religious and have a collection of pointless pieces of theology. Wow, wasn't that a good sentence? <clears throat> I like that one. We don't want to be hyper-religious people, have a huge collection of pointless pieces of theology that we know but doesn't affect the way we live. Well, I had a couple of experiences this last week that uh, could open a bit of a uh, light or shed a little bit of light on this subject. I, um, my computer, <clears throat> I was opening my computer, getting into it, and I got a pop-up, and a voice message popped up, and it said, your computer has been identified by Microsoft as dispensing spyware, and uh, your email accounts are being distributed, and your financial accounts. Um, you must call this number immediately. If you close this program before uh, you call this number, Microsoft will shut down your uh, computer to help block the damage being done to Microsoft. Okay. And it repeated over and over and over. Now, how many of you have had something like that? I'm so glad. <clears throat> so I'm sitting there looking at this thing. Now, I know... I know that there are these scams. 
But the help you get is, is not any help at all. Things like, be careful when something like this happens. Be careful. Well, how do you be careful when you've got a computer talking to you that Microsoft is about to be shut down and it's your fault? You know, you <clears throat> so there was a number on the screen, and actually I did what I felt I shouldn't do, but I went ahead and called the number. Microsoft Tech Services, how can I help you? I said, well, I got this message on my computer, and uh, it has to do with spyware. He said, oh, yes, we're familiar with that. I can help you with that. It's important that we get this uh, uh, off your computer. I can help you. Uh, what I want you to do is um, run a little program that will straighten this out. When he said, run a little program, I went, <clears throat> wait a minute. This is not good. So I want you to punch in the, number, uh, the letter R. I said, wait a minute. How do I know I'm talking to Microsoft? He said, well, our number is right there on your screen. This is Microsoft Tech. These people are very convincing, you know? <clears throat> Finally, I said, you know, I'm not comfortable with this call. And he said, well, you can terminate it. And when he said that, I thought, oh, I hung up. And then I, there's my computer still talking to me <clears throat> and the screen. So I unplugged everything. I shut it down. I did a shutdown. I closed it up. <clears throat> and I thought, now, what am I going to do? So... I got a hold of Eric Austin here, our IT tech specialist, told him about it, and he said, yeah, it's a scam. I said, well, good for you to know that. You're smart. You know this stuff. But <clears throat> I'm scared. What do I do? I'm about half paranoid, right? <clears throat> because <clears throat> right now, Diane and I are going through a process of um, uh, retirement, Medicare, Medicaid, Part A, Part B, Part C, Part D, Social Security, IRS, <clears throat> and we're selling a house. So there are a lot of documents, and all of those documents want your information. Then the IT people say, don't give anybody your information. They say, yeah, but the closing, they want your information. Well, be careful about giving your information. That is no help. <clears throat> how, no, how do you be careful about giving information on things? I was talking with Social Security in Washington State, they said, um, you may get a call from someone telling you they are uh, working with Social Security. You need to be careful when you get that call. I went, oh, thanks a lot. Be careful. So <clears throat> said, well, what do I do? said, don't talk to them. Okay. Call us. Get their name. Call us. And we will check it out. And if it's legitimate, then you can call them back and talk to them. This is the federal government, Social Security, and I've got to check out who I can talk to. Okay, this is scary, right? So, so far, I haven't been hacked as far as I know. My identity has not been stolen. My pennies are still in the bank where I hope they will remain. I mean, but the, it makes you nervous. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Here's why. Because there are people out there, <clears throat> maybe people in here, but there's people out there, criminals, who are hacking computer systems, getting into your identity, your information, and whatnot. They are criminals. There are also regulatory agencies who may not be doing their job, and all of this makes me very nervous, which will then lead me to my next sermon on the mark of the beast, which is computers. So <clears throat> wait for this one. This one is going to be very, very good. So the, the whole issue of crime and criminals and regulation and people who are supposed to do their job, I've brought with me, and I'll just summarize it very, very quickly. 
but a number of criminal activities of the last 10 or 20 years. The housing crisis of 2007 and 2008, which was a debacle of absolutely enormous, enormous proportion. People hardly realize how big this thing was. But where credit default swaps, you all know what those are, collateralized debt obligations, mortgage-backed securities, you, you've read all this, you understand. Listen, nobody understands this. Nobody knows what a collateralized debt obligation is. Standard & Poor's didn't know, Moody's didn't know, right? AIG didn't know. And this thing was um, a scandal of such enormous proportion. Liar, liar loans, if you've ever heard of those, or non-doc loans, non-documented loans. Just tell them any number you want for your income. They never check it. Ninja loans. No income, no job. That's what a ninja loan is. You don't have to have an income. You don't have to have a job. Just write down that you do. Nobody checks it. And because of that whole thing, the way it cascaded, we lost, American business lost, major, major investment bank. Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers went out of business. <clears throat> Finally, AIG had to pick up the tab for this fraud. And um, if you work a job, and uh, here we are coming uh, <clears throat> up on tax time, you know who's paying the bill for that fraud? You are. One trillion dollars, more than one trillion dollars, fraudulently taken out of the American economy. We use these numbers. <clears throat> Here's something, you can have some fun with this, not during this chapel, but some other time. Google what does a trillion dollars look like, and you will get some very interesting charts and graphics. And, but here's one, a trillion dollars. <clears throat> if you take $1,000 bills, $1,000 bills, and you put them in stacks, a million dollars will be four inches high. Four inches high, $1,000 bills, that's a million dollars. A billion dollars, the stack is 364 feet high. Okay? Of $1,000 bills, 364 feet high. A trillion dollars, 63 miles high. Now, you know, people think, that, well, we have a national debt, it's a few billion, no, it's a few trillion, well, whatever, it's just some amount of money. The enormity of the difference between a billion, a million, and a billion, and a trillion has, I just gave you one, only one. This is the one that I think is the easiest one to kind of envision. Four inches for a million, 364 feet for a billion, 63 miles high of $1,000 bills. You see the contrast between a billion and a million. So people say it was a trillion-dollar scandal. Listen, the impact on the American economy, the world economy, is absolutely enormous. There was another one, Bernie Madoff, if you've heard of that. Bernie Madoff, one of the, it is the single largest Ponzi scheme in American history, reported to be 62, maybe 65.5 billion dollars. Ponzi scheme is just a real simple thing. In fact, it's named after the guy who did it the first time, uh, Ponzi. That's where the name comes from. But um, <clears throat> I borrow $1,000 from Doug and promise to pay him 1100 back. I take the 1000 and I live high and buy things. And uh, then I borrow $2,000 from Andrew, and I pay Doug his 1100 and I take the balance, and I spend that on 
riotous living. And then, Chris, I borrow 5000 from you so I can pay Andrew back. And then I borrow, and it keeps escalating. You borrow money from people to pay previous loans off, but there's no collateral and there's no legitimate business going on. And you borrow, 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 borrow from people. And it's amazing how Madoff did that and accumulated 65 approximately billion dollars worth of fraud. Finally was caught in 2008, sentenced to 150 years in prison. This can come a little bit closer to home right here in Minneapolis. Uh, right here in Minnesota, there was a, a Ponzi scheme a few years ago, the Petters Ponzi scheme. Maybe you watch this, or maybe you're too young to have seen it, but us oldsters, uh, we not even saw it. We were very, very close to it, all right? But it was an investment scheme, the same thing. This one, 3.65, I think it is, billion dollars, same kind of thing. People that we know, people that we did business with. In fact, I, I was in Ted, uh, invited, and Diane and I attended a Christmas party a few years ago at a mansion out on the west side of town because of people that know North Central, people that we knew, people who have been donors of North Central. Teen Challenge Choir was there to sing at this Christmas party. I mean, it was, it was quite, a, quite a Christian affair. Uh, during the evening, the governor of the state appeared and uh, came into this house, sat down, and what was really interesting, everybody was so nervous about, you know, what do you do with the governor, nobody even talked to him. And he, he went over and sat in the kitchen at a little uh, table by himself. And uh, I looked over there and I thought, somebody ought to be friendly to him. It was really one of those weird moments. So I went over and I was friendly. <clears throat> and I talked with the governor of the state, made him feel quite comfortable at the party he had come to attend. And uh, I have a picture of him and my wife, okay? And that same evening, this particular individual who was running the Ponzi scheme came to the party. Very handsome, very debonair, very striking, very convincing, very, very impressive. I met him as well. All right. Now, <clears throat> the reason for these connections are because people know people, and there's a thing called affinity fraud. When, uh, if you know people and you know an organization and you start getting close to those people and you start doing things and you start giving money to those people, all right, you need to understand this school has received contributions to build buildings and do programs from Christian people, but some connected to other people who did not act in such a Christian way. It's a very, very interesting, complicated story. Tom Petters is in federal prison serving a 50-year sentence, all right? So from something as enormous as the mortgage debacle to the Petters scandal, this whole thing of crime and criminals and regulatory agencies. But here's the principle. Bernie Madoff never stole a billion dollars before he stole his first penny. And had he never stolen the first penny, he would have never stolen the first hundred or thousand or million or billion. The same thing for all of those others. Secondly, the regulatory people, and here's what's frightening in America, that the regulatory people, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the federal government, the IRS, people who are supposed to watch this, Standard & Poor's, Moody's, people who just like you go to work 
sit down at their desk and are supposed to perform moral financial functions didn't do their work. And we had a national and an international thing because what? People were not faithful. Small crimes became major crimes. Small failures became major failures. All because people were what? Not faithful. I'm going to give you two stories from my own personal life that pertains to this. The first one, some of you have heard this story, most of you may not have, but it's called The Penny and the Parsonage Story. It's a true story. When we were pastoring in Stoneham, Colorado, a church, by the way, that was twice the size of the town that it was in, a remarkable accomplishment on my resume, uh, we had 20 people in town and 40 people in church. <clears throat> and so it was quite a mega church right there in the plains of Colorado. Had a practice that the four deacons of the church would count the offering, put it in a bag. They would give it to me with a piece of paper that would have the amount. I would then take that offering and I would fill out the deposit slip and take it to the bank the next day, 26 miles away in the neighboring town that had a bank, Sterling, Colorado. Now those deacons would count this offering in the back of the church and most of the time they got very, very close to the actual amount of the offering. <clears throat> But when I filled out the deposit slip, and that was my job, I had to get it right, right down to the penny. So my practice was Sunday night after church was all over, I would do the deposit slip, get it accurate, perfectly right, put it in a bag, and prepare to go to Sterling, Colorado the next day to make the deposit. One night I was sitting there, did the slip. I stood up, <clears throat> finished with the job. And a penny that had fallen off the table onto my lap fell onto the floor, and I looked down, and there was a penny that was a part of the offering. And I kind of said, oh, I'm nuts. <clears throat> you know, so there's a penny. So I picked up the penny, and I said, I'll put it in next week. And God spoke to me and said, you thief? <clears throat> I said, it's only a penny. And God said, it's not a penny. You are holding in your hand a principle. Nuts. <laughs> so I sat down, opened the bag, and took the deposit slip, made out a new one. It was a very small little job, but it was kind of annoying, you know. It's only a penny. Put it in my pocket. Who's going to know? Nobody that matters except God. <laughs> so I redid it, zipped up the bag, and when I did, the hallelujah chorus broke out in all of heaven. <clears throat> the Gordon had just gone from being a thief to a faithful steward. I will never forget all the feelings and emotions that I had. I, I feel it now as I remember those many years ago. But what I learned and what I've carried with me from that is that I do not handle pennies or dollars or checks or bonds or budgets, it principles. And it doesn't matter if it's a penny or a billion dollars, whether it's a penny in a parsonage or it's a Ponzi scheme, it's all the same. And from that, the lesson of handling pennies and that if you'll be faithful in handling pennies, the little things, then God is looking for faithful people who will then handle a dollar and a thousand dollars and whatever it may be. 
The second story comes from Portland, Oregon, when we were pastoring there. And one of the most wonderful people I ever knew in ministry is a little old widow woman on a pension named Minnie Gatchett. That's her real name, Minnie Gatchett. She was British. She had come to America. She lived at a tiny little white house and attended church, Minnie Gatchett. She was about 85 years of age, sweet as can be, most wonderful godly person, white hair up in a bun, tidy little British lady. And I would go visit Minnie Gatchett. One time I was there, and she fixed a cup of tea for me, and a crumpet, I think it was. It was something not terribly American, but it was very good. And we just talked, and she's such a sweet lady. She handed me her tithe check, which was $15. Here was a woman on a pension living by herself. She handed me her tithe check. I said, oh, thank you, Minnie. That's wonderful. I put it in my pocket And I concluded my visit, and my next appointment was in a restaurant, because we were building a a building in Portland, uh, an auditorium seating 1,200 people, so we had architects and business people and contractors and stuff like that. Now here, this is very, very interesting, because the next meeting was a lunch meeting with a contractor and an architect. Because it was for the building project of the church, it would be considered a business lunch. It is proper business practice for the host business to buy the lunch for the contractor and for the architect. That's called business practices. Even as I say it, I say it with a degree of carefulness about what really does constitute legitimate business practices in a church. But I, I know the rules, and I, so I was preparing to buy lunch for myself and these two people. I got there early, I was sitting there, I was looking at the menu, and God spoke to me and said, what do you want Minnie to buy for you guys today for lunch? And I said, well, it's the church that's, there's this general fund, there's lots of money in this general fund, and there's the building fund, and there's a lot of money in that fund, and we're going to build this uh, building, and we've raised $300,000 so far, and I'm going through, and God went, yeah, 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 yeah. Where did that money come from, Gordon? I said, well, it comes from all of these people. He said, yeah, where does it come from? And I had the check in my pocket, a $15 check from Minnie Gatchett. And God spoke to me and said, It's your job to manage Minnie's money well. Manage Minnie's money. I have never forgotten, and I live with that principle. Managing Minnie's money. I said, well, in that case, I think I'll just have a glass of water. (laughs) Listen, as I describe this to you, here's what often happens. And I, I used the word often. People who end up in positions like mine or others where they're managing things, lose the sensitivity to the fact that they are managing Minnie's money. They're not managing North Central's money. $22 million budget. What's a hamburger in all of that? Listen, just like the penny in the parsonage, the handling of principles is not the amount. I mean, I've... I told this story a number of times. I told it to a, a big group of people at a uh, division of foreign missions, AGWM. said, you know, those of us who travel the world and buy airplane tickets and 
drive cars and buy gasoline and, and whatnot. You know what we're doing? All of us collectively are managing Minnie's money. And let's not a one of us get this big shot idea that just because we can raise $100,000 for an orphanage in Africa, that uh, somehow Minnie doesn't matter anymore. I, I travel with two women all the time. I have for years. First one, my wife, Diane, and she is a bear on finances and waste, a gift of God. The other woman is Minnie Gatchet. It's kind of a ghost-like figure, just a specter of Minnie Gatchet, who follows me around everywhere I go. And she and the Holy Spirit look over my shoulder constantly and say, Gordon, are you taking care of the pennies? And I say, Minnie, I'm doing my best. Now, this is, this, is, this is such reality to me, but it has helped me to try to maintain a degree of sensitivity of what it means to be an operative and an agent, an employee of the kingdom of God, and still be sensitive to the pennies and the principles and the minis that is a part of my work. All right? So is that revival? Is that run, jump, shout, hoot, holler, shiver, quake, shake, fall down, jump up, run around, three years of endless services? Well, yes, it's that. But if that doesn't translate into how you handle a penny that falls off your lap, if it doesn't translate into how you handle a $15 check that you've got in your pocket, you still need a whole lot of revival. Amen. How does that apply to you? <clears throat> This is the good part, and just really hold on to this, because it, it, it's good, it will help you. How are you doing with the pennies? Because as of right now, people are probably not trusting you with a few million dollars to manage, right? So how are you doing with the pennies? And here's, here's the little metaphor, the analogy, the comparison. You are presently the CEO, and that's the chief executive officer, and the chief financial officer of your dorm room. Okay. okay, hang on. You are the CEO and the CFO of a room that you don't own. How are you taking care of it? Because if you'll be faithful with the pennies and the little things, that is a test of whether you're ever going to get a dollar or an office or a building or an orphanage in Africa or a business down on Wall Street to manage for a bunch of other people. You're also the chief executive officer and the CFO, chief financial officer of a very powerful communications company. It's the internet, it's Facebook, and so I'll just ask you, these are, these are good questions. What do you do on Facebook? Are you a faithful Facebook person, or do you use Facebook for unfaithful, perhaps unrighteous, perhaps unkind, maybe ungodly purposes? What do you allow? You're the CEO. What do you allow to be a part of your communications company? 
I sit in this office over here day after day after day after day with other administrators and we make decisions on what we will allow, what we will not allow, what we will do and what we will not do, what moral principles we will stand by and what things we will not tolerate. We do it every, every time we meet, constantly. I'm the CEO of this university. Still scares the liver out of me to think they ever ask me to do that. But here's the point I'm trying to make for you. We're in chapel. This is a spiritual experience. We have worship. That's a spiritual experience. I am preaching principles of the Word of God. That's a spiritual experience. We will have prayer and fasting after this, and we will ask God to, dear Lord, please help, help equip us to be a good house for God. Make us clean and holy. God, make us fit to be a place where the Spirit of God can dwell. And we will pray today, perhaps the focus will be, help me be a good CEO of a 12 by 15 space that I'm responsible for. Help me be a good CEO of a communications company where I will rule and regulate and I will determine what that communications company is allowed to do and what it will not do. And even when it is awkward to talk with the board or employees in my company about what happens in our business, I'll step up and I'll be faithful. And I say, you know, that's not what we stand for. We don't stand for that kind of language. We don't stand for that kind of behind-the-scenes talk. We don't stand for We don't tolerate that. Why? Because we are the people of God, and Jesus doesn't do stuff like that, and neither do I, and neither will the people who are around me. Thank you very much, says the CEO of your little communications company. Is this good? Is this helpful? Say, no. Why don't you preach about the New Hebrides revival? Azusa Street. Listen, that stuff is absolutely pointless if it doesn't come down to the way you and I live in the presence of God. Okay? So, I'm going to call us to prayer. Why don't you stand with me? If you have a keen sense of the presence of God, you develop deep spirituality and character, if you know that the security camera is always on you and that Jesus is looking through the lens, you know, they've done some tests. If there are security cameras around, people act one way, and if there aren't there, people act a different way. That's good for us. It's called accountability. Well, Jesus is always here, and the security camera is always running, and Jesus is always watching, and the Holy Spirit, look, he's not in the gotcha business. He's in the make you business. He's not just waiting for you to make a mistake so he can punish you. He's saying, come on, let's do this right. Let's do this in a godly way. Let's do this the way Jesus would do it. Let's do this the way good, godly, righteous people would do it. He's in the making business. How many of you want to be made holy in the image of Jesus? Of course, that's why we are here. So, we're going to go to prayer. And I'm going to ask you to pray this kind of a prayer. Something like this. I'd like to have the people who are going to serve communion come on up. And um, looks like we're missing the oil this morning. We better get the oil here so we can anoint. But uh, I want you to begin to pray with me something like this. Dear Lord, you've put pennies in my possession. Help me to learn with these pennies principles of the kingdom of God. Dear Lord, you've put pennies in my possession that I might be 
a good honorable manager of small resources so that I can be made fit and ready to be a manager of larger resources. Lord, help me be a faithful steward because of the presence of God that works in my life. Dear Lord Jesus, I pray for all of the students who are gathered here in this room and considering the application of spiritual principles to such down-to-earth, mundane, ordinary things. But every one of these young people, a chief executive officer, a chief financial officer of a business and a communications company, and I pray, dear God, help them to learn in these small environments the principles, a keen awareness of what is right and wrong, a very keen and deep commitment, not to knowing what they can get away with when no one is watching, but to know that always Jesus is watching, and they've been placed where they are placed to be an extension of Almighty God and Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God to bring supernatural order and peace and wholeness and holiness in the dorm room, in the cafeteria, on the Facebook screen, in the personal interactions, living out the presence of God in the ordinary ways of life. God, I want to thank you for being present with us, not only in the exuberant times, but in the difficult times of decision-making and regulation as we consider all of the various things that are important to be an organization that represents God well. Help us all, Lord, I pray, to live in and out of your presence, the keen awareness that you're with us, to hold us accountable, but also to make us capable, because you are with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen, everyone? Amen. Let's find a place to pray. Pray the prayer that I ask you to, to pray, among many others. God bless you. Let's go to prayer.